PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for Volume 89, October 2009. This month's research reports focus on stretch exercises in patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain, movement training in infants born preterm, information seeking by physical therapists providing stroke management, hand cycle training in tetraplegia, step test performance and measures of activity and participation after stroke, muscle deficits and mobility after knee replacement, aging and attentional demands of stair ambulation, and physical fitness in children with high and low motor competence. PTJ is now on Twitter. Go online to twitter.com slash ptjournal and sign up to receive notices of new PTJ content and updates on PTJ-related activities on your own Twitter page or on your mobile phone. Clinical summaries, invited commentaries, e-letters to the editor, online-only features to articles, bottom-line clinical summaries, and the Bottom Line podcast are all available at www.ptjournal.org. Stretch exercises increase tolerance to stretch in patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain, a randomized controlled trial. By Roberta Law, Dr. Lisa Harvey, Dr. Michael Nicholas, Lois Tonkin, Maria D'Souza, and Damien Finnis. This abstract is presented by Dave Corboisier. Stretch is commonly prescribed as part of physical rehabilitation in pain management programs, yet little is known about its effectiveness. The researchers conducted a randomized controlled trial to investigate the effects of a three-week stretch program on muscle extensibility and stretch tolerance in patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain. A within-subject design was used. One leg of each participant was randomly allocated to an experimental or stretch condition, and the other leg was randomly allocated to a control or no-stretch condition. The participants were 30 adults with pain of musculoskeletal origin persisting for at least three months. They were recruited from a multidisciplinary pain management program at a hospital in Sydney, Australia. The hamstring muscles of the experimental leg were stretched daily for one minute over three weeks. The control leg was not stretched. This intervention was embedded within a pain management program and supervised by physical therapists. Primary outcomes were muscle extensibility and stretch tolerance, which were reflected by passive hip flexion angles measured with standardized and non-standardized torques, respectively. Initial measurements were taken before the first stretch on day one, and final measurements were taken one to two days after the last stretch. A blinded assessor was used for testing. The researchers concluded that three weeks of stretch did not increase muscle extensibility, but it did improve stretch tolerance. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Roberta Law is a musculoskeletal physiotherapist in the physiotherapy department at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia.
Next, exploring objects with feet advances movement in infants born preterm, a randomized controlled trial by Dr. Jill Heathcock and Dr. James Cole Galloway. Previous work has shown that full-term infants who were healthy contacted a toy with their feet several weeks before they did so with their hands. Previous work has also shown that movement training advanced feet reaching. Certain populations of preterm infants are delayed in hand reaching. However, feet reaching has not been investigated in any preterm population. The primary purpose of this randomized controlled trial was to determine whether preterm infants born at less than 33 weeks of gestational age contacted a toy with their feet at two months of corrected age before doing so with their hands, and whether movement training advanced feet reaching. Twenty-six infants born preterm were randomly assigned to receive daily movement training or daily social training. During the eight-week training period, the infants were videotaped in a testing session every other week from two to four months of age. Both groups contacted the toy with their feet at two months of age during the first testing session prior to training at an age when no infants consistently contacted the toy with their hands. After eight weeks of training, the movement training group displayed a greater number and longer duration of foot toy contacts compared with the social training group. These results suggest that movement experiences advance feet reaching as they do for hand reaching. For clinicians, feet-oriented play may provide an early intervention strategy to encourage object interaction for movement impairments within the first months of postnatal life. Future studies can build on these results to test the long-term benefit of encouraging early, purposeful leg movements. This article will be the subject of a discussion podcast. The podcast will be available later this month at www.ptjournal.org and on iTunes. Late author Dr. Jill Heathcock is assistant professor in the Division of Physical Therapy at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Next, Factors Influencing Information Seeking by Physical Therapists Providing Stroke Management by Dr. Nancy Salbach, Sarah Gilcher, Dr. Susan Jaglel, and Dr. David Davis. Searching and Reading the research literature are essential activities for enhancing the use of research and optimizing the quality of physical therapist practice. The objectives of this study were to identify practitioner, organization, and research characteristics that are associated with searching or reading the research literature among physical therapists involved in stroke management. The researchers used a cross-sectional study design. A survey questionnaire was mailed to more than 1,100 physical therapists in neurological practice in Ontario, Canada. Therapists who treated people with stroke were eligible to participate. Of the 334 eligible respondents, 270 completed a questionnaire. Among participants with complete data, about 38% of participants conducted online literature searches two or more times in a typical month. And about 73% of participants read the research literature two or more times in a typical month. The following factors were associated with conducting online literature searches two or more times in a typical month: participation in research, self-efficacy for implementing evidence-based practice, being male, perceived facility support of research use, 
and Internet access to bibliographic databases at work. The following factors were associated with reading the literature two or more times in a typical month. Participation in research. Self-efficacy in implementing evidence-based practice. Membership in a professional organization. Perceived facility support of research use. And positive perceptions about the usefulness of the research literature and the relevance of walking interventions evaluated in the stroke rehabilitation research literature. A positive association between searching and reading was observed. A limitation of the study was that the cross-sectional design limited inferences of causality. Despite a low frequency of searching, the majority of the participating therapists acquired and read the research literature on a monthly basis. Online searching and reading are closely linked behaviors. Modifiable practitioner characteristics, including self-efficacy for implementing evidence-based practice and participation in research, appear to be key determinants of evidence-based practice. Lead author Dr. Nancy Salbach is Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Effects of Hand Cycle Training on Physical Capacity in Individuals with Tetraplegia, a Clinical Trial, by Dr. Linda Vallant, Dr. Annette Dalmeyer, Dr. Han Haudick, Dr. Hans Slotman, Dr. Tomas Janssen, Dr. Marcel Post, and Dr. Lucas van de Vauda. Regular physical activity is important for people with tetraplegia in order to maintain fitness, but it may not always be easily integrated into daily life. In many countries, hand cycling has become a serious option for daily mobility in people with tetraplegia. However, little information exists regarding the suitability of this exercise mode for this population. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the effects of a structured hand cycle training program in individuals with chronic tetraplegia. The researchers compared pre-training and post-training outcome measurements of physical capacity. Structured hand cycle interval training was conducted at home or in a rehabilitation center in the Netherlands. The participants were 22 patients with tetraplegia who were at least two years post-injury. The intervention was an 8- to 12-week hand cycle interval training program. Primary outcomes of physical capacity were peak power output and peak oxygen uptake as determined in hand-cycle peak exercise tests on a motor-driven treadmill. Secondary outcome measures were the following. Peak muscle strength of the upper extremities, as assessed by handheld dynamometry. Respiratory function, forced vital capacity, and peak expiratory flow. And participant-reported shoulder pain. After a mean of 19 sessions of hand-cycle training, significant improvements were found in peak power output, peak oxygen uptake, and mechanical efficiency as reflected by a decrease in submaximal oxygen uptake. Except for shoulder abduction strength, no significant effects were found on the secondary outcomes. A limitation of the study was that common health complications such as urinary tract infections, bowel problems, and pressure sores led to dropout and non-adherence.
patients with tetraplegia were able to improve their physical capacity through regular hand cycle interval training without participant-reported shoulder arm pain or discomfort. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Linda Valland is occupational therapist and senior researcher in the Department of Research and Development Occupational Therapy at the Heliomara Rehabilitation Center in Vic on Zee, the Netherlands. Next, step test scores are related to measures of activity and participation in the first six months after stroke by Dr. Vicky Stimmons Mercer, Dr. Janet Keyes Freeberger, Dr. Xiao Shu Chang, and Dr. Jama Purser. The step test is a measure of dynamic standing balance and paretic lower extremity motor control in patients with stroke. Little is known about the extent to which impairments assessed by the step test relate to activity and participation during stroke recovery. The purpose of this prospective cohort study was to determine relationships between step test scores and measures of activity and participation during the first six months after stroke. 33 individuals, 18 men and 15 women, with a diagnosis of a single unilateral stroke participated in the study. They were tested one time per month from one to six months post-stroke. The step test was considered an impairment level measure. Physical function was assessed by self-selected gait speed and the physical function index of the 36-item short-form health survey. Self-reported disability was assessed by three domains of the stroke impact scale, mobility, basic and instrumental activities of daily living, and participation. Regression analyses were conducted to examine the bivariate associations between step test scores and each physical function and disability measure at each time point. The step test scores were positively associated with both physical function measures. The associations were stronger for self-selected gait speeds than for the physical function index scores. During the first six months after stroke, each additional step with the paretic lower extremity on the step test corresponded to an increase in gait speed of 0.07 to 0.09 meters per second. Each additional step with the non-paretic lower extremity was associated with an increase in gait speed of 0.07 to 0.08 meters per second. The impairment disability associations were weaker than the impairment physical function associations. Limitations of the study include a relatively small sample size and a lack of examiner blinding with regard to participant characteristics. Impairments in balance and paretic lower extremity motor control, as measured by the step test, relate to physical function and disability during the first six months following stroke. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Vicki Stimmons-Mercer is Associate Professor in the Division of Physical Therapy, Department of Allied Health Sciences, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Muscle deficits persist after unilateral knee replacement and have implications for rehabilitation. By Anu Valtonen, Dr. Tapani Poihonen, Dr. Ari Hainonen, and Dr. Sariana Sipala. Knee joint arthritis causes pain decreased range of motion, and mobility limitation. Knee replacement reduces pain effectively. However, people with a knee replacement have decreases in muscle strength of the involved leg and difficulties with walking and other physical activities. 
The aim of this cross-sectional study was to determine the extent of deficits in knee extensor and flexor, muscle torque and power, and in the extensor muscle cross-sectional area after knee joint replacement. In addition, the association of lower leg muscle deficits with mobility limitations was investigated. Participants were 29 women and 19 men who were 55 to 75 years old and who had undergone unilateral knee replacement surgery an average of 10 months earlier. The maximal torque and power of the knee extensor and flexor muscles were measured with an isokinetic dynamometer. The knee extensor muscle cross-sectional area was measured with computed tomography. The symmetry deficit between the knee that underwent replacement surgery and the knee that did not undergo replacement surgery was calculated. Maximal walking speed and stair ascending and stair descending times were assessed. The mean deficits in knee extensor and flexor muscle torque and power were 13% to 27% respectively. The mean deficit in the extensor muscle cross-sectional area was 14%. A larger deficit in knee extension power predicted slower stair ascending and stair descending times. This relationship remained unchanged when the power of the non-operated side and the potential confounding factors were taken into account. This study had the following limitations: one, the study sample consisted of people who were relatively healthy and mobile, and two, some participants had osteoarthritis in the non-operated knee. Deficits in muscle torque and power, and in the extensor muscle cross-sectional area, were present 10 months after knee replacement, potentially causing limitations in negotiating stairs. To prevent mobility limitations and disability, deficits in lower limb power should be considered during rehabilitation after knee replacement. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Anu Valtonen is researcher. In the rehabilitation and pain unit at Kumin Lakso Central Hospital in Kotka, Finland, and in the Department of Health Sciences at the University of Huvaskula in Huvaskula, Finland. Age affects the attentional demands of stair ambulation. Evidence from a dual-task approach by Dr. Heidi Oja, Dr. Rebecca Kern, Dr. Chen Ho, Janice Lin, and Dr. Carolee Winstein. Approximately 75% of all injury-producing falls on steps for people of all ages occur in people 65 years of age and older. Diminished attentional capacity contributes to fall risk in older adults, particularly when task demands are high. The purpose of this study was to compare the attentional demands of ascending and descending a set of stairs in older adults and younger adults. This was a non-blinded, prospective, single-site observational cohort study. Twenty adults without disabilities were recruited. Ten were over 65 years of age. And another ten were between the ages of 21 and 33. A dual-task approach was used for two task conditions. The first task, referred to as the probe task, was standing and responding verbally to an unanticipated auditory tone as quickly as possible. The second task was ascending or descending a set of stairs with the same probe task. 
a two-factor group-by-task analysis of variance with repeated measures on task, standing, and stair ambulation was performed for voice response time. The group-by-task interaction was significant for voice recognition time. Post-hoc analyses indicated that during stair ambulation, the voice response time for older adults was significantly longer than that for younger adults. For the standing task, the voice response times were similar for the younger and older participants. For stair ascent and descent, the average voice response times were more than 100 milliseconds longer for older participants than for younger participants. This study had the following limitation. Because of the small sample size and generally fit older group, generalization of the study findings to older people at risk for falls is not recommended until further research is done. The results demonstrated that although both older and younger adults required similar attentional resources for the standing task, older adults required significantly more resources during stair ambulation. The findings suggested that the dual-task method used here provided a clinically useful measure for detecting important changes in attentional demands in older adults who are healthy. A bottom line for this article is available online. Lead author Dr. Heidi Oja is Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy, College of Health Professions at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Last this month, physical fitness in children with high motor competence is different from that in children with low motor competence. By Munika Haga. Physical therapists often treat children with low motor competence. Earlier studies have demonstrated poor physical fitness outcomes and a reduced level of physical activity for these children compared with their peers with normal motor skills. The aim of this study was to examine how physical fitness developed over time in two groups of children, those with a low level of competence in motor skills and those with a high level of competence in motor skills. From an initial sample of 67 children, a group of 18 was identified as having high motor competence or low motor competence on the movement assessment battery for children and was selected for the present study. Three girls and five boys comprised the low motor competence group. Four girls and six boys comprised the high motor competence group. A longitudinal design was implemented and physical fitness in the two groups was evaluated by measuring different fitness components over a period of 32 months. A mixed effects analysis of variance revealed significant main effects for group and for time, but no group-by-time interaction effect. The low motor competence group performed less well on all physical fitness measures than the high motor competence group. Both groups scored significantly higher on the physical fitness test after a period of 32 months. The lack of a significant interaction effect indicated that the relative differences in physical fitness outcomes between the groups were relatively constant over time. This study was limited by the small sample size and a lack of assessment of anthropometric variables and children's perceived self-efficacy. Children with low motor competence are likely to have poor physical fitness compared with children with high motor competence. The differences in physical fitness outcomes between the groups were relatively constant over time. Given that various physical fitness components are linked to different health outcomes, these consequences are matters of concern for both 
current health status and later health status in children with low motor competence. A bottom line for this article is available online. Author Munika Haga is assistant professor in the Department of Physiotherapy, Faculty of Health, Education, and Social Work at Sir Trondelag University College in Trondheim, Norway. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.